Welcome to another edition of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And this week we're going over UFC Vegas 28, headlined by a big fight uh, between Jerzinho Rosenstrike and Augusto Sakai. Big fight, I mean, in stature, not so much in uh, the ability to determine who's going to be a number one contender or who's even going to crack into the top five. I made a joke, you know, earlier in the week talking about you know, I don't know who watched their last two fights that uh, came to the conclusion that these two should probably be fighting in the main event. But here we are. We got Sakai and Rosenstrike in the main event. But I'm here for it regardless because it is a UFC event and it is another opportunity for us to go out there and make some money. Quick thoughts about the event. The fight that I'm looking forward to most by far is Santiago Ponzinibbio versus Miguel Baeza. Very, very excited for that fight. Very, you know, can Santiago Ponzinibbio go out there and showcase what he used to be? You know, did, was a Li Jingliang fight just a, you know, a, a fight for him to get his feet wet? Uh, and then Baeza, you know, biggest step up in his career, 10-0. Very promising prospect, but easily the most toughest competition that he's had to go up against. You know, far cry from Takashi Sato and Matt Brown, especially if Santiago Ponzinibbio can tap into uh, what he used to bring to the table before that extended layoff and then eventually coming back and getting knocked out by Li Jingliang. Uh, a couple other par- uh, fights that I'm a little bit um, intrigued by, Marcin Tybura versus Walt Harris. Is Walt Harris going to be able to get him out of there early or is Tybura going to be able to go out there and, and get it done a little bit later? Uh, Tom Breeze, is he going to be able to reverse his fortunes from that Omar Yakmato fight uh, and, and pull off the, the win here against Antonio Hoyo? The odds suggest he should. Will he go out there and do it? Do so. We're not 100% sure. And then obviously, Mano Firo is a girl that I'm very intrigued by. Uh, she had a very successful UFC debut against Victoria Leonardo, where she was able to knock her out in the second round. And then uh, she's going up against her toughest test to date, to date in Marina Moroz, who should be able to push her and show us if Firo truly has the chops to go out there and crack into the top 10 of this division. So, a couple intriguing spots, if I'm not mistaken. This is also another early card, just like our last one. We're going to have a 4 p.m. Eastern prelim start time and 7 p.m main card start time i could be off on that but uh, i believe that's what i saw on the espn schedule so don't be sleeping on this card it's going to be an earlier card which i love 10 30 p.m eastern finish time sign me up i'm always about it not to mention I might actually miss it this weekend. This weekend's my uh, first wedding anniversary for, uh, with me and my wife. We're going to be going to a nice little cottage Friday night all the way till Monday. I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to be catching the card on Saturday. Not, you know, I'm not even going to bother thinking that I'm going to watch it because I don't want to, you know, have my work impede on my vacation time. But again, it's going to be hard to not think about it and wonder what the results are. So uh, there's that as well. All right. Let's get into the, uh, the 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 betting recap of our last event, as we always do. You, as you guys know, transparency one hundred and one. Always talk about your last fight in ter- or last event in terms of betting, uh, and, and just be transparent with everybody. You know that, that's why we third party track. That's why. We don't hide from our losses and uh you know we did lose two straight events uh, a couple weeks ago where we had bellator 258 and uh ufc vegas 27 where we uh you know we, we had an 11 event winning streak it get busted there and now we're back to two straight winning events with ufc 262 where we cashed and then most recently ufc vegas 27 where we hit once again. We It's a clean sweep. So we'll start off with the dog of the night play, which was Carla Esparza at two units at plus 100. Shout out to anybody that got her at plus 140, that crazy lines that she was at earlier. 
you know, there's nothing on tape that let us know that Yan Jianan had a, a good defensive wrestling game. She's never shown a good defensive wrestling game. You know, the Claudia Gadelia fight was a great look for her, but we know Gadelia really does start to slow down, and Carla Esparza does not. Carla Esparza didn't even need the full 15 minutes as she was able to go out there and get her first finish in a long time. I don't even recall the last time she got a finish before that fight, but a good way for Esparza to truly uh, solidify herself as possibly one of the next people to fight Rose Namajunas, who... She already has a win over. She did it. If you guys remember, she won that strawweight title, the inaugural strawweight title fight over Rose Namajunas as that was the, the, the final in the Ultimate Fighter season that they were doing and she was able to capture the title there. So, you know, there's a good little built-in storyline if they do decide to go with Carla Esparza for the next title shot. Uh, so yeah, good plus two units there for the underdog or the dog of the night play and then our lock of the night play, you know, it's almost looked down upon to be doing chalky parlays but when you have such... Um, when you have such a discrepancy in skill level, you got to do it. I will say, though, the Demir's Magulov one was a little bit hairy, especially in that third round. As you saw Alves, who I was expecting to really slow down late in that fight, did not slow down at all. We saw him uh, really put it on Ismagulov in that third round, but Ismagulov still gets his hand raised as he did have a very strong first two rounds, which he was able to, you know, again, get his hand raised via decision. And then the Bruno Silva fight, as one-sided as I expected it to be, I probably should have just went all-in on round one Bruno Silva as uh, he went out there and absolutely dusted Victor Rodriguez. Didn't even make a sweat for it. I will say this. I was watching it on a stream. My stream cut out right before the fight started. When it came back, I just saw the replay of Victor Rodriguez getting knocked out, and that was more than enough for me to be happy because I know we just cashed our lock of the night play that night. So that was plus 3.02 units on a minus 166 par. Uh, parlay between Bruno Silva and Demir Ismagulov. So we cashed plus 5.02 units on that night and we're uh, right back to a two-event winning streak, uh, which brings us to UFC Vegas 28 to hopefully get us back on a three-event winning, three winning streak, which will make all my plays behind the Patreon paywall once again. I will remind you guys a great leeway as always into the patreon plug uh check out the patreon link is in the description below you guys get my picks as soon as i drop them compared to the public who has to wait until the friday before the fights where the lines are probably not the same anymore um uh so patreon members get the picks immediately they also get early access to the breakdowns as well as the best bets and props article where i go through every single fight on the card give you my best bet and my best prop for every single fight uh so you guys can kind of you know make up your own mind in terms of which fights you want to tackle and i do give you guys a confidence rating beside each bet too to let you guys know how confident i am in every single spot so great great perks on the patreon not to mention the discord chat has been popping for the patreon so shout out to all my guys on the patreon uh and the discord especially because uh we've been giving out some some decent winners uh myself as well as a, a bunch of other dudes have been remaining very active on the community picks thread uh on the discord so if you are a part of the patreon or you're looking to join the patreon make sure you guys connect to the discord because it is very helpful and we got a great positive community over there that a lot of people enjoy watching uh, or sorry being a part of and, and staying active like those are my boys now i can't wait to meet up with them one day but uh those guys in the discord are truly something special so make sure you guys check that out secondly Coolbet, coolbet.com, uh, promo code MMALOTN2. If you guys are looking for a new bookie, Coolbet is a great way to go out there and try to secure some extra cash. Uh, they're one of the few websites that lets you go out there and parlay props. Uh, they got some great odds too. Um, 
you know they're only available in select few countries i believe canada some south american countries as well as a bunch of scandinavian countries they're all listed in the description below but if you guys are looking for a new bookie do check out coolbet.com they are awesome once again use promo code mma lotn number two and uh they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks so trust me you're going to want to take full advantage of that coolbet coolbet.com promo code mma lotn2 and there we have it. Those are the plugs. Those are the betting recaps and my quick thoughts on UFC Vegas 28. So without further ado, let's just get into the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoy them. And I'll see you guys on the flip side. Jordan Levitt versus Claudio Poyas. We got minus 200 on Levitt and plus 170 on Poyas. Now, uh, Poyas hasn't been fighting in the UFC. Um, or I should let me rephrase that. He's been in the UFC since about 2016, but has only competed three times. He's two and one. He lost that one fight, which was actually the uh, the the uh, tough Latin America number three. That was the final for his division. I believe it was at lightweight. Uh, Martin Bravo ended up knocking him out in the second round and then moving down to featherweight and competing there. Uh, but he's had a lot of time off in between fights, right? He lost that fight. Then he comes back, takes a beating to uh, Felipe Silva, eventually finishing him in that third round with a beautiful comeback knee bar. Uh, and then uh, the, the last fight, he fought Marcos Mariano. I believe that was in 2019. And he pretty much dominated him, right? That was a minus 400 uh, type of performance from Claudio Poyas, uh, taking down Marcos Mariano relatively easily and just controlling him. A couple of submission attempts, good ground and pound, but Mariano was tough enough to, you know, tough it out and and see that 15 minute and see that judge's scorecard. But Claudio Poyas absolutely dominated him, dominated him in that very one sided fight. Now, I'm not a big Jordan Levitt believer, right? The guy's 8-0, big knockout victory in his last fight against Matt Wyman. 23 seconds into the fight, absolutely slams Wyman on his head and knocks him out. Not a lot of people expected that. I thought if, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that if Levitt won that fight, it would probably be by decision, right? Uh, Levitt has a very good ground game, able to get his opponents down and, and kind of just grind them out. Uh, but Matt Wyman had never been submitted in his career, and he's gone up against some pretty good uh, jiu-jitsu artists uh, in, in most recent history. Jordan Levitt before that notched his uh, UFC contract by winning on the Contender Series back in 2020 where he was able to submit Luke Flores with a beautiful submission. Uh, I believe it was a choke if I'm not mistaken. Uh, beautiful finish for him there uh, in that fight too. But one thing that we see often with Levitt is that he's just not comfortable on the feet, right? Like the guy, he throws the strikes out there to kind of just eventually close the distance and get the fight to the ground, but there's not much technique behind it. It's very sloppy. It's not, uh, you know, the most technical. If people are able to stop the shots of Jordan Levitt, they're going to have a lot of success in terms of actually knocking him out or having a lot of uh, you know even just winning the fight you know handing Levitt that first uh loss on his record the Luke Flores one was very uh, mystifying to me right Flores was more than willing to engage in the jiu-jitsu outward department with him and maybe he was just way more confident in himself than he should have been and unfortunately for him he ended up paying for it by getting submitted by Jordan Levitt later in that first round Claudio Poyas, like I said, coming off the Ultimate Fighter of Latin America, uh, won three fights on the show. There are a couple fights where he was able to, uh, well, most of the fights, he was dragging the fights to the ground, uh, either submitting or TKOing these guys on the ground, or even winning decisions by just grinding these guys out. Um, and then eventually getting knocked out by Martin Bravo in the finale. 
one thing I will say though is that Poyas does have a better uh, striking game than Levitt and almost anybody has a better striking game than Levitt but it's good enough that he should be able to kind of touch up Levitt on the feet now the best part about Poyas here is that he does have a solid jiu-jitsu background himself like I was trying to creep his Instagram page and the last time I saw he has a brown belt from like 2018 so I'd be surprised if he's not a black belt by now unless he had all these injuries kind of keeping him outside of the cage or outside of the training room but it seems to be training on a on a on a regular basis a lot of wrestling a lot of grappling that's kind of been his forte throughout his mma career so which uh, so which leads me to believe that he should be able to hang with jordan levitt on the ground here now i think that poyas wants to play this safe as possible and keep it on the feet and actually get his work done up there but even if it does drag to the ground i don't think it's going to be as one-sided as a minus 200 indicates for jordan levitt that's, which is why I actually like Claudio Poyas here as the underdog. I think he can make it very competitive on the ground. And I think even if uh, when it's on the feet, it should be one-sided traffic with Claudio Poyas uh, landing the better of the strikes. Not to mention... My guy Poyas has moved to training camp over there to Sanford MMA to really round out his striking, which is probably the weakest part of his game, which is why Martin Bravo was able to knock him out, which is why Philippe Silva was having the success that he was out on the feet. Now, if Poyas can kind of uh, change his fortune, fortunes and, and fix that part of his game, he's going to have a lot, a lot of success, especially in this fight against Jordan Levitt, who, in my opinion, is just a one-dimensional fighter. Now, you can be very good in that one dimension, right? If you're just a very good jiu-jitsu player and you're good enough to get fights to the ground, apparently Levitt has a little bit of a wrestling background from high school uh and it's been good enough for him to go eight no at this point in time uh he is gonna eventually run into some trouble perfect case mr cron gracie right cron gracie was so one-dimensional with his with his uh mma game where it was just i want to get you to the ground i'm gonna get your back and i'm eventually gonna submit you unless you're not able to get him down and then you have to deal with uh, Cub Swanson on the feet. And then you're going to have mad trouble on the feet trying to get the fight to the ground and taking all the damage that you're going to be taking. I don't think that Poyas is striking is to the level of Cub Swanson at this point in time. But I think it's serviceable enough for him to, you know, land the damage on Jordan Levitt and really make it tough for him. There's that one fight from February of 2020 of Jordan Levitt that really rubbed me the wrong way. Like he just did not look good on the feet at all. Horrible striking technique. Horrible work all, all around. But his where he shines is that grappling game and that jujitsu game so more often than not he's lucky that he's able to drag it into that realm and actually pull off most of these submissions and these finishes the way that he is so i ultimately will go with claudio poyas uh i'll go with him to win either by uh by ko or decision ultimately i'll go with him to win by by ko in the first round you know what no i'll call it ko in the third round as i think that levitt is going to continue to struggle to get this fight to the ground the later it gets i think it's going to be even harder for him and then ultimately i think we'll see poyas uh kind of overwhelm him on the feet and then tko him so i'll go poyas round three ko and last thing i'll say about this people might think that's a possible round three prop spot depending on what the odds are if it's better than like plus 1500 or something like that i might poke it a little bit myself but uh just putting a gun to my head i'm trying to figure this matchup out uh, i do see poyos winning uh and i will take him to win by third round tko
Yusuf Zalal versus Sean Woodson. We got minus 190 on Woodson and plus 165 on Yusuf Zalal. And let's start off on the Sean Woodson side who did take his first ever pro MMA loss last time around as a minus 500 favorite against Julian Arosa. Now that was a fight where he had a lot of success in that first round. Julian Arosa started to pour it on in the second round, but we did see a lot of good work from Woodson in that second round regardless. But in that third round, it seemed like that pace and that pressure of Julian Arosa really started to catch up to Sean Woodson and hence why uh, Julian Russell was able to kind of hurt him uh, and then eventually lock up that dart stroke and get that finish. Beautiful, beautiful work from Julian Arosa. If I'm not mistaken, Arosa also took that fight on short notice, so good work from him to be able to get his hand raised, especially via finish and especially as a plus 400 underdog. Now, Sean Woodson's game is pretty much, you know, reliant on his boxing-heavy approach, but he does have a very sneaky knee up the middle that he's able to catch a lot of opponents with especially considering that he's six foot two uh, and that definitely plays into this 145 pound division as one of the more weirder and lankier frames that people have to deal with um like I said, Sean Woodson, primarily a boxer. I believe he had a pretty uh, solid um, uh, amateur boxing record, uh, but unfortunately was uh, involved in sort of some sort of crazy accident, which kind of cut that short. And then eventually he uh, ended up switching over to MMA. And then within the last couple of training camps, found himself aligning himself with uh, James Krause. And that's where he's been able to really get his game going. Uh, you know, wins the Contender Series fight uh, as a big underdog, plus 275 underdog there. And then comes in as a, pretty much a pick against Kyle Bokniak and does a lot of good work there. Now, all three of his past uh, three opponents have been able to take Woodson down. But Woodson has done a really good job in terms of getting back to his feet and nullifying the amount of control time and damage that his opponents are able to get off on him. Uh, Kyle Bokniak actually has the most amount of control time out of those three opponents but the majority of that control time came up against the cage but even during that uh, those situations we saw Bakniak struggle to get Sean Woodson down and that's when Woodson was one defending the takedowns but two also dishing out the damage so even though that uh, Kyle Bakniak got close to four or five minutes of control time Pretty, pretty much none of that control time meant much at all as Sean Woodson was able to kind of nullify what uh, Kyle Bakniak was doing at that point in time. So um, I, I still do think that Sean Woodson has a lot of good things to bring to the table here, even though he's coming off a loss in his last fight. He's 28 years old, so he's still working on his game and truly rounding it out. And obviously having a mastermind like James Cross to kind of devise a game plan for you is really, really going to help, especially with that lanky frame and that great boxing work that he truly has that should be able to help him uh you know stay out of trouble against most opponents now uh Yusuf Zalal is coming into this fight plus 165 dog and he's actually on a two-fight losing skid right now uh he looked really good you know since he made his debut against Austin Lingo if I'm not mistaken that was at UFC 248 uh February of 2020 and he was able to rattle off five UFC fights in what a year and a half just less than a year and a half and he just remained very very active took a couple fights in short notice some of them paid off for him some of them didn't uh but losing to Ilya to Poria is not a bad thing at all. Taporia is going to be a very high level uh, fighter in the UFC within the next year or so as we definitely seen Toporia go on a bit of a terror uh, himself obviously beating Yusuf Salah in his UFC debut and then going out there and finishing Damon Jackson in emphatic fashion in his second UFC fight but with Yusuf Salah we're talking about a guy that's pretty much good everywhere right um, he has a decent submission game has decent striking uh, and, and and a decent wrestling game but uh, when he's not able to get his opponents down and his opponents are better strikers than him then he falls into some issues right he can beat guys 
like Austin Lingo. He can beat guys like Jordan Griffin, who he's able to take down and, and do some good work against. And even Peter Barrett, who I don't truly believe uh, belongs inside the UFC. But then he runs into trouble against guys like Ilya Tapori and Sungu Choi. And the Sungu Choi one was very in, uh, interesting because we had Yusuf Zalal coming in as a minus 245 favorite. There are a lot of sharp people that I saw on Choi in that fight, and Choi did a good job in terms of keeping the fight vertical. And then when it was vertical, he was the one getting his jab off, his combinations off, and really letting his Muay Thai game going, whereas Yusuf Zalal just seemed a little bit behind the, the, the eight ball at the time and just couldn't really get his own game going. It seemed like a lot of it was centered around getting Choi down, and then once Choi was not, you know, going down without a fight it didn't seem like Zalal had much other options in terms of truly getting a get, uh, anything else going it didn't even seem like he had a plan b to be honest so Sean Woodson you know Sean Woodson might give up a takedown or two but I believe in his ability to get back to his feet to truly get his boxing and his jab game going that's really going to stifle use of Zalal you know he has a seven inch reach advantage which I think he's going to make complete or take complete advantage of especially with that beautiful jab that he has that's going to keep Zalal on the outside if Zalal is unable to take Sean Woodson down things get very hairy and I think it's going to be very tough for him to get Woodson down and even if he does get him down I don't think he's going to be able to keep him down I think Woodson is the much better striker and again with that long lanky reach he's going to be able to keep Yusuf on the outside and nullify the amount of damage that Zalal is going to be able to do especially whenever he tries to close the distance to one get his own strikes off inside the pocket and two obviously try to engage in the clinch to try to get the fight to the ground I do like Woodson here I was leaning Zalal very heavily pre-tape especially because the last Last thing that we do remember from Sean Woodson was him losing to a guy like Julian Rosa, but we got to give Rosa some due, right? The guy's been around for a while. He's a wily veteran. He has a lot of skills, uh, especially that pressure that he's able to put on his opponents. And that's not really how Zalal fights, right? Is Zalal going to adapt a new type of fighting style to go out there and beat a guy like Sean Woodson? Maybe. You know, even him, he's only 24 years old. He's four years younger than Sean Woodson. He has a great uh, training camp behind him too, headed by Mark Montoya over there at Factory X, and that could definitely help him as well. But I do think that the raw skills that we have here with Sean Woodson are going to be enough for him to, one, keep this fight vertical, and two, keep Zalal on the outside with his beautiful boxing techniques. So ultimately, I'm going to go with Sean Woodson to win this fight via decision. I do think use of Zalal is very, very durable. He'll be able to take all the shots that Woodson's throwing at him, but unfortunately, he's not going to be able to get his own game going. So I'm going to take Sean Woodson to win this fight via decision. Marina Moroz versus Manon Fioro. We got minus 165 on the sophomore Manon Fioro and plus 145 on Marina Moroz. Let's start off with Moroz, who's on a two-fight winning streak right now. And she's actually approaching that winning streak with the way that she hasn't really won uh, her prior fights in the UFC, which is a grapple-heavy approach, right? The Sabina Mazza fight, she was able to ground it time and time again, really grinding out Sabina Mazza. And we've seen uh, most recently from Sabina that she truly does struggle with fighters that decide to bring the fight to the ground and don't give her the space that she needs to actually get her striking going uh and then obviously the myra bueno silva fight for marina moroz uh she grounds her in the first two rounds but in that third round i don't know if she was just it was gassing or or what it was but bueno silva really started to put it on her she uh bueno silva was uh, first pretty much at all times in terms of starting the combinations and starting the striking exchanges and that's where i truly think was really putting marina moroz on her back foot not to mention the calf kicks that uh, bueno silva was getting off and the power in which 
shoes landing on Moreau's was really starting to show luckily for Moreau she was able to at least squeak out those first two rounds so she was able to get her hand raised that night but it definitely came from the grappling approach right she she has a good enough volume and striking volume on the feet to kind of lull her opponents into thinking that it's going to be a striking battle and then eventually she drags fights to the ground and that's where she uh or at least in her last two fights that's where she was able to really get her hand raised uh after you know accruing some control time and obviously staying busy enough on top so that the referee doesn't really stand them up now Moreau's uh she she uh, the way that she matches up with Firo here it's almost similar to the Bueno Silva fight but I do think that we'll see Firo uh be uh, more assertive and I think we'll see her actually go first more often not in those combinations and not just wait for Moros like Bueno Silva seemed to be in those first two rounds uh we'll talk about Firo right now in terms of uh what she brings to the table she got into MMA primarily as a kickboxer and a Muay Thai fighter, and she did lose her first ever fight to Bellator's Leah McCord. I believe that was over for the Cage Warriors promotion at the time, but very, very close fight. You know, McCord did a good job in terms of grinding the fight when it was required, but Firo did a good job of getting back to her feet and dishing out damage on the feet. But it seemed like, I don't know if it was a hometown rub for Leah McCord, but also uh, it seemed like the judges were kind of scoring the takedowns a little bit more than the damage that Firo was dishing out in that fight. I don't really want to rate uh, the the competition that Firo was really fighting on the uh, UAE Warriors uh, promotion, but she was going out there and doing what she needed to do, not to mention getting pretty much finishes in all, every single one of those fights, but she showed a good skill set all around. Obviously, her primary focus is her striking, Muay Thai, you know, kickboxing, that's where she thrives, but we have seen her land takedowns when required, seen her, you know, uh, flow on top pretty well, um, but obviously when you get to the UFC, it's a completely different situation and a completely different level of competition that you're going to be going up against so we have to ensure that she's actually going out there and making the improvements that's required to be successful inside the UFC she the the fight against Victoria Leonardo she comes in as a minus 230 favorite so it's almost a you know as if the writing's on the wall that this is almost a layup of a fight for her to get you know uh comfortable inside the UFC with starting off with the win and not just a win but a dominant win by getting a finish in that second round with a beautiful head kick and then following up with some uh combinations afterwards to get victoria leonardo out there but the one thing that i really liked in that fight was like her assertiveness right she was the one going forward she was the one kind of throwing strikes and she was calculated about it she wasn't over patient but she was patient enough that she was waiting to find her shots uh her check right hook was a beautiful uh look for her in terms of just setting up her combinations uh whenever leonardo would try to close the distance you'd see that left and right come uh, especially with that right hook that would was doing a lot of damage and i think that's where morose is going to start to fall into some issues morose might be able to make this a much closer fight than it should be just based off her volume and her ability to stay active alone but i do think that Fiorot should be able to go out there and land the more impactful shots which should ultimately actually uh you know uh, have the judges kind of favor her uh especially when this fight is going into uh if it goes to the judges scorecards where i think it which i think it will Moroz is a very durable opponent so I do think that she'll be able to take what Firo is taking or dishing out but I do think that uh, she's going to have a tough time dealing with the heavy heavy strikes that are going to be coming back her way uh, from uh, Firo. The one thing I will say about this, the the ATT trained Moroz might be, you know, uh, be able to uh, develop of uh, or devise a game plan that's going to be perfect to fight a girl like Firo and I think it has to be centered around what made her successful in her last two fights the grappling if she's able to get Firo down if she's able to kind of uh, get that part of her game going she might be able to steal two rounds here 
that's the issue. We just haven't seen Firo truly uh, challenged in that department, you know, outside of her first fight, uh, first ever pro MMA fight against Leah McCourt. And even with Victoria Leonardo, we did see Leonardo go for takedowns, but uh, Firo saw them call, coming from a mile away and she was able to stuff him. If Moroz, you know, gets into that groove of striking and throwing out this volume and then mixes in that double leg, is Firo going to be ready? Is she going to be, is her takedown defense going to be good enough? And also, is her get, get up game going to be good enough in terms of nullifying the amount of control time? that Moroz is able to capitalize on with that said I don't think Moroz will be able to you know I think that Firo is a very special talent she's 31 years old so she's pretty much getting close to where her peak is and I do like what we see from her she is a vicious striker she throws a lot of heat in her shots and a lot of opponents kind of wilt under it and I think that Moroz is going to start to feel it too the longer that this fight goes again I'm not 100% sure if Firo will actually get the finish here which is ultimately why I'll take Firo to win this fight be a decision but the only thing that gives me a slight pause is if Moroz Rose, you know, doesn't really react uh, too bad to the shots that are going to be thrown her way, and she's still going out there and throwing out the volume that she's known to throw. Uh, even if she gets her takedown stuffed, if she keeps that volume on, if she keeps her leg kicks going, if she kind of keeps a combination and a pressure and a pace on Firo, um, you know, it, it could cause Firo some issues here. I know there is a narrative out there to go on fade girls like Firo who are, you know, either making their UFC debut off the Contender Series or are, uh, you know, only a fight or two into the UFC career and we still have some question marks about them. But I do think that Firo has something special about her that should make her successful enough to at least reach the top 10 of this division so i do think she beats Moroz. i think she's going to have the much better more impactful strikes and i think ultimately she'll be able to get her hand raised via decision mason jones versus alan patrick we got minus two 90 on mason jones and plus 245 on alan patrick let's start off on the patrick side of things who's on a two-fight skid or a two-fight losing skid at this point in time coming off of losses to a, a finish to scott holtzman and then a decision loss to bobby green last time around and now everybody seems to be figuring out what the alan patrick um approaches and it you know it, it's a little bit rudimentary in a sense which i kind of find hard to to say especially with the guy that I used to back back in the day, especially as a lock and I play. I believe the last one I did was the Demir uh, Hadzovic fight, which is the last fight he has actually won. Now, if you're able to keep the fight vertical and you're able to deal with the herky-jerky approach of the striking of Alan Patrick, you should have a pretty good easy time, right? Uh, he mainly has a front kick up the middle, blitz attacks from the uh, outside, but outside of that, no real technical boxing or technical striking from Alan Patrick because the main thing he wants to do is try to drag this fight to the ground and then just smother you with his wrestling and his jiu-jitsu. But the issue is, it seems like in his fights, at least most recently, is he doesn't do the best job in terms of controlling his opponent and mason jones does a really good job in terms of you know never settling on the bottom and just popping right back to his feet as we saw in the mike davis fight alan patrick has moved his training camp from fusion xl in florida to uh i believe sanford mma which is also in florida uh but it does give him a huge crop of uh uh, uh training partners and great coaches to go out there and try to hone his skill but then you got to bring into the age into the the equation here, right? He's thirty seven years old. How much improvements can he truly make after changing camps after this amount of time? 
And is it really going to have an effect on his approach here? I don't think that he's going to be able to go out there and shore up his game, most notably his cardio issues that he seems to have later in fights. And that's where I think that Mason Jones is going to start to, you know, pull away with this fight the more that he's able to keep this fight on the feet. Mason Jones shows some great things in that Mike Davis uh, uh, fight. You know, he was a plus 135 dog going into his UFC de debut against Mike Davis. And if I'm not mistaken, they had actually received the fight of the night honors that night because that fight was absolutely bonkers plenty of successful moments from either guy you know uh big strikes knockdowns uh stuns uh all that type of shit was going down in that fight with mason jones uh, and uh you know mason showed a great chin he was uh at a huge uh speed discrepancy against mike jones but uh um or sorry, Mike Davis, I want to say Mike Jones because of the rapper from back in the day, but uh, he was dealing with a huge speed discrepancy against Mike Davis, uh, but his chin held up and he was able to kind of throw back uh, in in response to Mike Davis and land some good shots of his own. Davis landed a, a several takedowns in that fight. I believe it was three or four takedowns that he actually landed, um, but he only accumulated about 50 seconds of control time because Mason, uh, Mason Jones, as soon as his butt hit the ground, he was right back up to his feet because he was not settling on, on bottom. That's Something that you hear like Paul Felder say a lot, right? The best takedown defense is okay. Even if you get taken down, just don't settle. Don't allow the opponent to 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 claim full guard and and start to control you from there. Just get your butt right back to to, to your feet, and that's exactly what Mason Jones is able to do. Uh, before coming to the UFC, he was the champ champ over there in Cage Warriors. Uh, he won the lightweight title, and then right after that, they threw him into a, a champ champ title fight uh, in the welterweight uh, division. If I'm not mistaken, it was actually very at the time and uh mason jones was able to capture it and then he comes right on over to the ufc i don't put too much credit into that considering the fact that he never really defended either title but what we do see in those fights is just grit determination and great and great combinations not to mention the fact that guy has a black belt uh in judo a brown belt in jujitsu and uh he can definitely crack on the feet because he has some good combinations and he has some good power as well to go with it in this fight against alan patrick i think his takedown defense is going to very much hold up here and that's going to force alan patrick to strike and that's not what you want to do against a heavy hitter like mason jones who's able to really put it on his opponents and really hurt them i'm kind of stumped in terms of mason jones by knockout or by decision but i am actually uh leaning the the knockout a little bit more as i do think that uh, alan patrick is just not the greatest nail but he's a great hammer right unfortunately for him mason jones is going to be the hammer in this fight and i do completely understand why the steam is coming in on mason jones as he has a lot more of a well-rounded game 11 year youth uh advantage and not to mention his ability to just keep coming forward take the damage and his takedown defense not to mention his get up game is going to be a little bit too much for alan patrick here so um jones uh, is definitely one of my more confident picks on the card i do think he goes out there and cruises against alan patrick and i do think he actually gets him out of there probably in the second round if not the third round so this could potentially be a third round prop uh for this fight that that we could potentially be looking at but i do think that mason jones's overall game his ability to, to dish out damage take damage and then get back to his feet uh, even if his opponents get him to the ground uh should help him uh you know uh, put the beating on Alan Patrick and really showcase that Patrick is you know he's past his prime 37 years old I believe going on 38 this year and even changing camps over to Sanford MMA can't help help everybody you guys know I'm a big Sanford MMA guy I'm a big Fortis MMA guy but there are some fighters that are just too far past their peak uh, and their prime to go out there and try to you know rejuvenate their career by changing up their camps and I don't think that's going to help Patrick here so the line might seem a little bit too wide to some people but I do think that Jones has all 
the chops to go out there and put a beating on Alan Patrick and finish him. So I'll go with Mason Jones to win this fight by second round TKO, but I will be sprinkling that third round prop too because we do know that uh, Alan Patrick has some cardio issues of his own and he don't want to have that against a guy like Mason Jones who could definitely put it on you. So once again, I'll go to second round TKO, but this is definitely live for a third round TKO prop for Mason Jones. Francisco Trinaldo versus Muslim Salikov. We got minus 260 on the Russian. We got plus 200 on Masaranduba francisco trinaldo so let's start off on the trinaldo side who is actually on a three fight winning streak and i think that's going to be surprising to some people considering that he's 42 years old but he just hasn't been competing that often uh and uh that again it might surprise people that he actually has a win over bobby green in that amount of time bobby green has had several fights since that fight so obviously he's probably leveled up in that amount of time but masaranduba is just slowly being that guy that just keeps putting together a couple win streaks not to mention he could probably be on a six fight winning streak if he actually got the nod in that alexander Hernandez fight as a lot of people thought he should have the Bobby Green fight was close though so that probably could have gone either way but I do think the um uh, you know the McDessie and Herbert fights were pretty clear-cut wins from obviously he knocked out Herbert in a pretty back and forth fight Herbert was having a lot of success in that fight uh, and then John McDessie just could not get anything going and Masaranduba was pretty much pretty much able to just stalk him for the majority of that fight and land his strikes at will uh the issue here though is why is he a plus 200 underdog I, I just don't understand that I think the line is just completely way off here with Muslim Salikov you're talking about a guy who is obviously Russian and probably has that Russian talent tax on him and if he didn't have that Russian background or if his name was Chris White or something like that this fight would probably be much closer lined but Salikov is just not that impressive to me I just don't understand what people truly see in him now the age obviously is an issue here for Francisco Trinaldo or people will make it an issue he's 42 years old but you're talking about Muslim Salikov who's coming up on 37 a couple days after this fight actually goes down so he's no spry chicken himself but when you truly start to break down this fight and look at the tape on these guys, you just don't understand why this line is as wide as it is. You know, Salikov, very low volume. Trinaldo, quite low volume himself, but has some pretty good power in his hands. But Salikov, you know, he he seems to rely heavily on small moments, or sorry, big moments that don't happen that often to truly sway the judges, right? For example, the Lariano story star poly fight, for the majority of it, it's kind of a stalemate, right? Salikov is getting off some good strikes, but it was really that second round where he's able to kind of get away and and really land a big strike on star poly and hurt him and get close to finishing him. But outside of that, you know, both guys are just trading strikes and being very low volume and there's not much to, to really judge out there. The Elizio Zaleski fight. I thought he lost that fight, just as a lot of people thought that Zaleski actually won that fight. So, you know, another questionable fight for him there. But then he's able to, you know, knock out Ricky Rainey. He's able to knock out Nordine Taleb. So the judges don't actually get put into the, uh, the situation there. Trinaldo did get dropped by Herbert a couple times in their fight. So maybe his durability is on the brink at this point in time. But for the majority of his career, the guy's been a tank and his durability has been ironclad. And I think it should be able to hold up here against Muslim Salikov, who again, there aren't a, a whole lot of opportunities for him to get those moments that he needs to actually win these rounds. And Trinaldo could actually be the one that actually finds those moments himself. This is the same Muslim Salikov that go, went out there and got choked out by Alex Garcia five fights ago. Again, that was five fights ago. It was a long time ago. Could have been making improvements, but could also be regressing too as the guy's close to being 37 years old at this point in time. He was a minus two Tony favorite in the Alex Garcia fights, yet he, gets, he goes out there and gets choked out. 
So I do think that's Ronaldo, you know, and I'm not saying he should be favored, but I think this fight should be closer to a pick him. And I'm ultimately going to be going on the Ronaldo side here as I do think he has a hell of a lot of value. And not to mention, I think this fight goes the full 15 minutes. And I'd rather be holding that plus 200 ticket uh, compared to a minus 260 ticket uh, in a fight that I expect to be super, super close and could also, could possibly go either way. I can see the bigger moments happening happening for Ronaldo as he, you know, seems to go forward a little bit more and, and seems to land with a little bit more more power and that could possibly cause Salikov some issues here and as long as Ronaldo's chin isn't completely shot as it seems like it might be you know starting to deteriorate in that Jay Herbert fight but the Jay Herbert fight you're getting a guy that throws with more volume which creates more opportunities for him to potentially rock hurt drop and possibly finish his opponents we just don't get that from Salikov so that's why I like Trinaldo here. I think that he can make this fight close and uh, he's going to look closer to a, a, a pick him or maybe even a favorite once this fight is all said and done. So I'm going to go with Trinaldo. I think he can pull off the upside here. And I think people blindly putting Salikov into their parlays, just like the putting Makwan Amir Khani in their parlays, they're going to be uh, surprised as one, how close this fight could be, and two, the parlay might get busted. Let's be honest. Very, very close fight. A lot of live dogs on this and a lot of good big live dogs too. So I'm going to be going with Ronaldo. I think he pulls off the upset and I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision. Ilir Latifi versus Tanner Bozer. We got plus 170 on the sledgehammer Ilir Latifi and minus 200 on Tanner Bozer. Let's start off on the Latifi side who's on a very rough skid uh, right now. Um, 0-3 in his last three fights. Uh, obviously 0-1 in his heavyweight run inside the UFC. He did lose to Derek Lewis last time around in a very, you know, kind of a close fight. Uh, you know, we saw him successful with his takedown in the second round where he was able to grind that out. And then in the third round, you know, did secure a takedown again had some good control time but Derek Lewis did manage to find his way back to his feet as Derek Lewis always ends up doing and he was able to put together enough damage against Ilir Latifi that he was able to get his hand raised via decision that night but that was February of 2020 it's been a while since we've seen Latifi inside the cage and that is a little bit of a concern but you know Latifi is a veteran at this point in time 22 fights the guy's 37 years old he's pretty much seen it all at this point so I'm not going to uh, say if he loses this fight, it's because of the layoff, but that is something definitely to note here. Uh, Latifi seems to split most of his time between All-Stars training camp over there in Sweden and American top team down there in Florida. Uh, I, I was trying to, you know, stalk him on the IG and figure out where he was doing the majority of his camp, but he's just putting up model shots of himself on, on, a, on a fucking horse. So it's really hard, tough to tr tell uh, where he was spending the majority of his time for this training camp. But we pretty much can tell what the, the, the stylist matchup or the clash in this matchup is going to be right Latifi is going to try to get this fight to the ground just as he's been able to do, try or try to do over his last couple fights um and Tanner Bozer is going to try to stay on his bicycle get his leg kicks going stay on the outside and try to you know defend the takedowns of Latifi the issue here is though we haven't really seen Bozer completely challenged in the grappling realm for over four or five years uh definitely not in the ufc you know most of his fights uh, and most of his opponents have wanted to fight him in a striking battle and uh you know he is able to beat the majority of those fights or those fighters in the striking realm you know knocking out his last two wins obviously lost to andre Arlovsky last time around but that was a very weird performance from tanner bozer we see slightly more volume from him often right or at least enough volume that it it's clear that he won the round 
rounds. But he was fighting very, very close to Andrei Arlovsky. Arlovsky seemed to land the more significant strikes, which ultimately uh, swayed the referees or the, the judges in his realm. But I do think that if we see Bozer go out there and learn the lesson from that fight, he should go out there and throw with a little bit more volume, especially his leg kicks, which has been very, very helpful for him throughout his uh, the majority of his career. He actually has more fights than Nilir Latifi, which is kind of surprising, but Bozer has been active for a long time. He's been fighting a lot over there in the Russian scene. He has a couple of fights on the West Coast and Canada too, but since coming to the UFC, he's put together a 3-2 and two record, but you can't really be mad at the two losses. Well, you can kind of be mad at the Andrei Arlovsky loss, right? That was one where it felt like he just didn't go right something that's similar to one of his training partners KB Buller who obviously went to a decision against Andre Andreas Mihalaitis a couple weeks ago there was just no urgency and that's kind of what we saw from Tanner Bozer last time around against Andre Olovsky and then obviously loses to Cyril Gan in his second fight in the UFC can't really bang on him too much in that fight especially as he was coming in as a plus 470 underdog but the, when Tanner Bozer wins he's the one kind of going first he's the one throwing volume combinations a lot of leg kicks and just staying on his bicycle um, seems like he's going to have the better cardio here uh, with uh, Alir Latifi who seems to just completely gas out especially if he's not able to complete takedowns but that's the question mark right the last time we saw Tanner Boza have to deal with the grapple heavy approach didn't look the greatest right like he's getting taken down he's getting controlled doesn't really have a get up game and you're going to have a very thick Alir Latifi on top of you Tanner Boza you're going to need to find a way to get back to your feet uh, and then start dishing out some damage otherwise we'll see Latifi grind this fight out so by no means am I comfortable with minus 200 on Tanner Boza in this fight even though I do think he uh, wins this fight I think he goes out there I think he gets his footwork going I think he stays on the outside we do have to remember we're back at the apex for this fight so there might be a little bit of you know or less uh, real estate to actually work with for Tanner Boza if he wants to stay away from the grapple heavy approach of Elir Latifi but I do think that will see him successful enough in terms of you know at least notching two rounds where he's out striking Latifi and then eventually getting that uh, decision victory it's just how successful will Latifi be with that grappling game and we just haven't seen anything from Bozer inside the UFC that indicates that he's going to be able to stop what Latifi's bringing to him and which is why I'm ultimately going to be staying off of betting Tanner Bozer here especially at minus 200 if we're getting closer to minus 125 minus 130 for Tanner Bozer I'd feel a little bit more obligated to go out there and put the money there because I do think he's the better fighter especially at this stage of both of their careers you know we're talking about a Tanner Bozer who's eight years younger than him at this point in time and again much better striker much better volume much better gas tank much better footwork and then uh Ilir Latifi obviously decent power in his hands uh but his grapple heavy approach usually is what gets him his wins in his fights and uh you know if he's able to do that here against Tanner Bozer he should win just not 100% sure if he'll be able to that's the question mark because we just haven't seen Tanner Bozer have to deal with it so uh with that said i'll still go with tanner bozer i'm going to say that he you know evades the grapple heavy approach for the majority of this fight gets his kicking game going gets his combinations going gets his footwork and ability to stay away from the big power of latifi and then ends up pulling out a decision victory in this fight and uh, getting back onto the winning track especially after that dismal performance against andre lofsky last time around so once again i will go with tanner bozer to win this fight via decision Montana De La Rosa versus Ariane Lipsky. We got minus 280 on Montana De La Rosa and plus 220 on uh, Ariane Lipsky. Also, you can get uh, De La Rosa around minus 250, minus 260. There's even uh, one spot, I believe, FanDuel at the time of this recording that currently still has around minus 200. And I think that's an absolute gaffe on their, their part, assuming and actually just 
taking into consideration how the rest of the bookies are actually landing this fight. So I really like Montana De La Rosa in this fight. You know, this she's a woman that I've actually been going out there and backing on several occasions. And, you know, I, I don't think I have a bias on her per se, but I like the fact that she has a really good wrestling background. And more often than not, she's able to implement it against her opponents and be very successful with it. You know, uh, in the Nadia Kasim fight, I was able to pack her as a lock of the night play there, and that was very easy to catch. I did have her as a slight underdog in the Andrea Lee fight, that one didn't really pan out to the best of its abilities. Had her again as a lock of the night player against Mara Romero Barella. That obviously cashes. Backed her ever so slightly against Viviani Arujo. Uh, that one whiffs. Uh, backed her slightly against Myra Bueno Silva. That one goes to a draw, so we get a push there. And now we get another opportunity to back her as a possible lock of the night play, considering she is a little bit chalky and a little bit juiced at this point in time. But once you run the tape, you completely understand why, and you will completely understand why that it might be worth uh, biting on the chalk in this uh, particular matchup. Like I said, Del Rosa, primarily a grappler that likes to take her opponents to the ground, grind them out, look for submissions at times, even look for some ground and pound at times. But she does a good job in terms of remaining active enough when she's on top of her opponents so that the referee doesn't actually uh, stand them up. You know, she's not really a lay-in player. Prayer. She she likes to control. She likes to dominate. She likes to go position over submission, which is great, especially with in ter- uh, especially in terms of neutralizing her opponents' uh, um, you know resistance and and jujitsu and ability. To to get back to her feet which is why i think that she is rightfully favored in this matchup right uh i do like what we see from De La Rosa in terms of the ability to get fights to the ground close the distance and not to mention the durability in her last two fights alone she's fought much more dominant and efficient strikers than she's going up against here with Ariane Lipsky and we saw her you know her her durability pay off very very well now even though she's 0-1-1 in her last two fights I do believe that this is a perfect matchup for her to go out there and right that wrong and get back onto the winning track especially against a girl like Ariane Lipsky who just doesn't show the greatest takedown defense now in terms of statistics we're talking about 45% takedown defense for Ariane Lipsky but it just does not look good now she seems to to have tried to revamp her camp and revamp her approach to fights by moving on over to a American top team down there in Coconut Creek, Florida. But I just don't know how much that's truly going to help in terms of your actual takedown defense. You can drill it all you want, but I do think that once she actually steps in the gazer and fights a woman like Montana De La Rosa, it's going to be a little bit harder for her to actually get her uh, game going. In terms of the the metrics here, we're, lo- we're talking about uh, Lipsky who's coming in at 5 uh five six i believe it is uh yeah five six with the 67 inch reach and then on the flip side for Della rosa uh we actually have five seven with a 68 inch reach so a slightly bigger opponent and Della rosa but we do know that her uh, grappling roots will definitely help her to to win this fight lipsky you know she's She's one of the few fighters that can go out there and go to a decision against a girl like Isabella Dupadua, who took the, who took the fight on less than thirty six to forty eight hours notice. Not to mention she completed plenty of takedowns against Ariane Lipsky in that uh, amount of time. But again, you know, you, you got to put into question the, the the cardio and the readiness of Dupadua, because if I'm not mistaken, uh, we had Lipsky going up against a completely different opponent. Uh, you know, and then on weigh in day, you had Dupadua jump in. Then she goes out there and gets a beautiful near bar near bar 
Jamar victory over Luana Carolina um, and then comes back and gets completely dominated by Antonina Shevchenko last time around and we continue to see the flaws in her grappling approach she doesn't really, to seem, really seem to have much off of her back right take that uh, knee barred out of the way in terms of the Carolina fight that was a very weird situation very weird positioning and not often that you actually see fights get into that position and I'd be very surprised if she was successfully able to get Montana De La Rosa into a similar position I'm not too worried about the jiu-jitsu that's going to be coming off the back of Ariane Lipsky as it seems you know non-existent to be honest and the queen of violence or violence queen whatever you want to call her nickname she's not transferring that from the KSW days over to her UFC days right to go out there and lose to Joanne Calderwood and Molly McCann as minus 250 plus favorites not, not a good look, especially the Molly McCann fight. Molly did a really good job in terms of mixing up her grab or her striking, you know, in and out movement, staying out of the way of the big shots of Lipsky, and then ending pretty much every single round uh, with the takedown to kind of cement that round for herself was a very good um, approach and game plan. I do play, think that De La Rosa is slowly getting more and more comfortable in her new home in Colorado with uh, the guys over there at Team Elevation. I think they're going to be able to elevate her game to the next level, especially with the win here against Ariane Lipsky. So once again, I do think that uh, the ability for De La Rosa to take damage en route to closing the distance and then eventually getting the fight to the ground uh, is going to be her path to success in this fight against uh, Ariane Lipsky. I don't think that we'll see Lipsky, you know, shuck off too many takedowns or or sprawl on too many takedowns i think it's just a little bit too easy for her to get taken down which is why i do think that del rosso who's probably probably the best grappler that Lipsky has faced in the UFC, I think it's going to be relatively easy for De La Rosa to drag this fight to the ground. I do believe in the cardio and the durability, especially of De La Rosa, to deal with the striking that Ariane Lipsky is going to be putting onto her and then eventually closing that distance and then getting this fight to the ground. I, I just don't see where Lipsky truly wins this fight. Is she going to be able to stuff enough takedowns to truly get enough uh, striking going on the feet? I don't think so. And that's where I think that uh, De La Rosa will thrive. So I think De La Rosa gets a fight down time and time again. And I wouldn't be surprised I actually see her pull off a submission victory here. She does seek the uh, the submission every now and then uh, against um, uh, Mara Bueno Silva. We did see her try to go for a couple arm triangle chokes. And they were close, but Bueno Silva had the correct defenses in terms of getting back to her feet and getting out of those bad positions. Does Lipsky, though? I'm not 100% sure now. She hasn't been submitted inside the UFC. And I do think that she's going to, you know, have some issues dealing with that here against De La Rosa. Um, but I will go on the safer side. I'm going to go with De La Rosa by decision. But don't be surprised to see me with a small play on the submission prop. As I do think that's a very lucrative part of this fight that some people might be overlooking. So once again, I'm going to go with De La Rosa by, submit, uh, by decision. But uh, again, I might sprinkle that submission prop once it does drop. Makwan Amirkani versus Kamwala Kirk. We got minus 280 on Amirkani and we got plus 220 on the UFC newcomer Kamwala Kirk. Let's start off on the Makwan Amirkani side, who is coming off a loss to Edson Barboza last time around, where he just seemed frozen on the feet, where really was not able to get much going on there. And Barboza was able to kind of tee off on him. Um, you know, had a very dominant second round where he dropped Amirkani a couple times and then eventually got his hand raised via decision. Uh, Makwan Amirkani, we know what his. His strengths are right his wrestling he wants to get the fight to the ground he wants to try to find that choke and eventually get that submission just as he was able to do most recently against chris 
Fishgold and Danny Hendry two and four fights ago but when he's not able to get those takedowns going and he is outstruck on the feet he is in for a world of trouble just like he was against Shane Burgos and Edson Barboza so he's three and two in his last five fights um one of them even stretching as far back as the Jason Knight times uh you know shout out to the the Hick Diaz uh, it's been a long time since we've heard from uh um, um Jason Knight who I believe is doing some good things over there in bare knuckle boxing but that just goes to show how inactive Maquan has truly been over his last five fights it seems like he's trying to you know piece it together obviously the Barboza fight was back in October uh so he's taken roughly about eight months off and he's back in the cage now uh and uh, I, I do believe he was scheduled to go up against somebody else I just can't recall off the top of my head but he does draw Kamala Kirk here who uh looks to go out there and, and pull off a big upset which I think he is highly capable of doing in this fight against Mach 1. Just finishing off with Mach 1, it seemed like he did the majority of his camp over there in, in Finland, if I'm not mistaken. There are times where he goes over there to SBG in Ireland to try to work with John Kavanaugh and get his game going over there, but it seems like his game is pretty much the same from the majority of the time that we've known him. A decent striking game, nothing to run home about, or write home about, I should say. Um, but his best work does come when he's able to secure takedowns and really kind of pressure his opponents and get his game going that way. Kamala Kirk, on the other hand, you're talking about a BJJ black belt, five out of his 11 wins coming via submission. Uh, but the guy is very talented. He trains at a fight ready, obviously, you know, made famous by uh, Santino DeFranco, the, uh, the the head coach over there, especially working with Eddie Cha as well. Uh, Henry Suhudo, the Pitbull brothers, uh, Tracy Cortez, Eric Anders started working over there recently too. So there's a lot of good guys coming out of fight ready and Kamala Kirk is definitely one of those guys. Now, just to put into perspective what the UFC thought of Kamala Kirk, uh, you know, when they put him onto the contender series against Billy Quarantillo, the guy was a minus 290 favorite against Billy Q. Minus 290. They had a very dominant first round, just as pretty much everybody seems to have over Billy Q the first time around. But then Billy just starts to pick it up in that second round, starts to get into your face, and really, you know, his durability seems to shine through, which is why he's able to go out there and really break his opponents and then finish him late, just as he did with Kamala Kirk. I believe in that second or third round, he actually ended up finishing him. Then he goes out there and loses a very close split decision to Bruno Souza, a fight that was primarily taking place on the feet. And it was Souza's karate style, his counter style that was uh, that prevailed that night. But again, it was a split decision. Very, very close fight that possibly could have gone Kamala Kirk's way, who was, in my opinion, controlling that fight uh, with, you know, just marching him down, landing his strikes. But it did seem like Souza was landing some very good and efficient strikes himself. So again, the fight could have gone either way. Then he goes out there and springs uh, two big uh, KO wins uh, in his next two fights. Goes out there and beats Guilherme Santos, uh, knocks him out, and then uh, makes Daniel Swain quit on the stool uh, before heading into the third round. But again, he's expected to go out and win those fights. Minus 385 against Santos and minus 450 against Daniel Swain. So the kid's talented. He's definitely very talented, which is why it kind of, you know, mystifies me as to why he's such a big underdog here against Maquan Americani. I think that Kirk is the, uh, the, the definitely a, a better striker than Maquan, uh, and I think that his BJJ black belt should help him kind of survive slash to be able to get back to his feet, uh, you know, against a guy like Maquan who kind of needs to get that game going to be successful. If he's not, then he's going to be in for some trouble. And I think that Kirk can absolutely put on a bit of a pace on him and a striking style that's going to cause Mach 1 some problems. 
So don't go out there and blindly bet Marquan Americani here because he's going up against a guy that was, you know, two and two in his last four fights uh, and, and did and couldn't cut it on the contender series. Let's not forget it was Billy Quintero that he's going up against. He actually has a win over Kevin Krumon in the regional scene as well. Again, like I said, he was a minus 290 favorite against Billy Quintero. So I think going into that fight, you know, Mick Maynard, Sean Shelby, Dana White, they were probably looking at Kirk as the guy that's probably going to get his hand raised. Not to mention, Kirk had a bunch of people who come from Hawaii to support him in Las Vegas for that fight, thinking that he was pretty, pretty much a shoe-in to win that fight. But Billy Q spoils the party and Kamala Kirk goes down the ladder a little bit further and eventually has to make his UFC debut a couple years later. Uh, I like Kirk here. I really do like Kirk here. Uh, I do think he has the chops to go out there and pull on the, uh, off the upset on Americani. And I think the absolute value here is on Kirk too. So I'm going to go with Kirk. And I actually, uh, I might pick him to win by decision. I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, you know, I think Marquand does have some cardio issues that he's going to have to address, especially if his opponents, uh, you know, if they start to target the body, we do see uh, Amir Khani really start to slow down. And Kirk, you know, seemed like a headhunter in the Santos fight. Hopefully, you know, the fight-ready guys can kind of get him uh, shaped up and ready to go, uh, especially, you know, working the body of Amir Khani, and then it should start to pay off for him the later in the fight. The last thing I'll say about uh, Kirk, uh, he seemed to have a bit of a cardio dump or whatever the fuck it was, but also, you know, mixed in with, with the, the style that Billy Quarantillo brings, but his output and his, his efficiency seem to drop off a cliff uh, about halfway through that second round in the Quarantillo fight but since then he's looked great right hasn't really had uh, much of a cardio drop off obviously you know the Bruno Souza fight is the only one we see go, go the full three rounds and then the Daniel Swain fight not much of a resistance considering that Swain you know a veteran obviously but has quit on the stool a couple of times now especially on one of the bigger stages when he's being on the contender series and then obviously most recently as the main eventer on the LFA scene but I do think that Kirk has some good chops to go out there and spring the upset. So I'm going to go with Kirk. I'm going to actually be keeping an, eye, keeping an eye on that round three prop as well as I do think that could possibly be uh, very lucrative in this spot. But ultimately, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> excuse me. I'll ultimately be going with Kamala Kirk to win this five-year decision. And uh, he, he could possibly be the dog of the night play for this card as I do think that a lot of people are going to be undervaluing him coming in as a short-notice guy and being, you know... <clears throat> Uh, seeing the odds at minus 300 is for a Maquan. A lot of people are just going to think that Maquan's going to go out there and steamroll this guy. Uh, I think they're going to be in a bit uh, in for a bit of a rude awakening as I do think that Kirk has all the striking chops and the BJJ chops to go out there and make this a striking battle which should ultimately favor Kirk and his power and his speed. Um, yeah, I got Kirk. Again, either, either late finish or a decision win for Mr. Kamwala Kirk. Antonio Hoyo versus Tom Breeze. We got minus 245 on Tom Breeze and we got plus 205 on Antonio Hoyo. Both guys coming off of very underwhelming performances. Let's start off on the Antonio Hoyo side who's on a, a two-fight skid in the UFC and not to mention he's 0-2 in the UFC, right? He hasn't actually gotten a UFC victory uh, to, to, to to boot. He did, or he was successful on uh, the, the contender series, but unfortunately he has fell fat uh, flat um in his uh debut fight against Andre Munez where he just couldn't get anything really going and then obviously the Duran Wynn fight where it seemed like the gas tank was really starting to catch up with him and Duran Wynn who also had uh cardio issues in that fight seemed to uh just be more successful with landing takedowns you know Antonio Hoyo was 
pretty much backing up, backing up the entire time, always staying on the outside of the warning track. And that was a perfect way for uh, Duran Wynn to kind of close the distance, push him up against the cage, clasp his hands behind his back, and then eventually uh, land that takedown and get some good work from on top. Now, there were certain thing, uh, things that Ojoyo did that were good in terms of, you know, rolling for a leg lock to try to create distance and eventually get back to his feet. But then it was like the, the, the bad fight IQ things like, you know, not really trying to take command of the cage. And, and again, it's obviously easier said than done, so I don't want to give him too much flack there. But uh, he just kept putting himself into positions that allowed Deron Wynn to be successful and allowed Deron Wynn to uh, pull off the upset as a plus 160 dog. Now, when you looked at them, like, kind of facing off, right? You had a six foot three guy in Antonio Hoyo and a five foot six guy in Deron Wynn, and you thought it should have been a pretty one sided fight, and that's exactly what the odds indicated too. But Antonio Hoyo shows he's not the brightest bulb in the uh, in the in the division, and he was uh, unfortunately on his back for the majority of that fight. His his strengths are his uh, his striking, right? He is a really good striker, has some good power on his shots. But if he truly can get comfortable and he truly can get the space needed to operate, then he's going to fall into some issues, and that's where he, uh, you know he ends up losing fights like he did in his last two uh and obviously he's on the chopping block here but he has a pretty stiff test ahead of him and, and tom breeze who's gonna definitely be looking to bounce back after a tumultuous run uh especially in his last five right you're talking about a guy who's two and three in his last five and those losses were very underwhelming losses albeit the sean strickland one i'll give him a little bit more leeway for considering how good sean strickland has looked as of late and we know that strickland is a very t- high level opponent um but the brendan allen loss you know he seemed to just fold in that fight and and even though Omari Akhmedov fight, fight uh, starts it off by pulling guillotine, which is probably the worst thing that you can do against a very uh, top-heavy uh, uh, fighter and wrestler like Omari Akhmedov. And then obviously, you know, in that second round, he had some success. But then uh, when he was not able to get his game going, uh, we did see Omari Akhmedov uh, reverse the position and then pretty easily sink in a triangle choke, which is very, uh, or an arm triangle choke, I should say, uh, which seemed like almost like Tom. Tom Breeze gave it up to him. You know, that Tom Breeze, when he's at his best, it's his striking. I know he's really trying to round out his BJJ game, which is great. Obviously, trying to be a mixed martial artist. But his bright spot is his jab, his ability to stay patient when he's in the striking realm, and just wait for his openings to truly explode on his opponents and really put a beating on him. Now, this is going to be like the toughest or the litmus test for us to know if Tom Breeze truly has anything left to offer to the UFC. Not to mention, I wouldn't even be surprised if the UFC actually cuts Tom if he ends up losing this fight to Antonio Hoyo you know minus 245 obviously indicates that he should go in there and roll but it's always a mental game when it comes to uh, Tom Breeze and his ability to kind of just be there in the moment and actually perform this is the guy you know I don't know if they handpicked him or anything like that but this is the type of guy that Tom Breeze should go out there and absolutely style on you know he has a striking advantage he's going to have the jiu-jitsu advantage I think he's going to have the cardio advantage too now it's all about Tom Breeze going out there and actually performing and showcasing that he has all the skills in the world to be you know what we or at least even close to what we thought he could be even before he lost that fight to Sean Strickland several years ago again I think he's the much better striker I think he'll be cleaner crisper to the strike uh, I think he'll be able to evade the big strikes of Antonio Hoyo I don't think Ohio is going to be trying to take this fight to the ground as I do think that Breeze has a slight advantage there but it just comes down to is Tom Breeze going to get broken by a guy like Antonio Hoyo and a part of me feels like he might but 
Ultimately, I still will go with Tom Breeze here. I think he styles on Antonio Hoyo. Not 100% sure if he actually finishes him, but as long as he's in his groove, gets his striking going, maybe mix in a couple of takedowns to try to get that jiu-jitsu going, I think he should actually roll here and, and, and really uh, you know, blow away Antonio Hoyo, who truly is not on his level. So once again, I'll go with Tom Breeze. I'll actually take him to win this fight by decision to be on the safe side, but I'm hoping we see him come out there with a fire of some sort and actually end up getting the finish. But just for prediction's sake, I'm going to go with the, uh, Tom Breeze to win this fight via decision. Dusko Todorovic versus Gregory Rodriguez. We got minus 160 on Todorovic and plus 140 on Rodriguez. And it seems like the money is coming in on Rodriguez, who's going to be making his UFC debut. Not to mention, this is going to be his third fight within three months. I believe even two months, if you want to call it that. Uh, he did fight Almotavio and knocked him out. And then he fought uh, Josh Fremd, where he was able to capture the middleweight title over there in LFA. Uh, that was less than two or three weeks ago. It's, it's a very quick turnaround for Gregory but luckily for him it wasn't much of a, a tough test for him to go out there and knock out Josh Fremd the way that he did not to mention he was a plus 190 underdog going into that fight so there was a lot of heat on Fremd unfortunately Fremd was not able to deal with the power that Gregory was able to put on him now Gregory Rodriguez looks like he's 45 years old but the guy's only 29 years old but he's had a lot of experience training with the high level guys when he was down there in Brazil at first at the X gym you know he was getting time with time with uh, Leota Machida Anderson Silva a lot of the big name guys that you knew from back in the day uh, he was kind of on the come up when they were pretty much at their peak or on the tail end of their careers and now he's recently moved his training camp over there to Sanford MMA probably been a couple years at this point in time but uh, it, it seems that's where he's trying to really like turn things around um and I, if I'm not mistaken, it's actually within his two last fights that he actually made the change over to Sanford MMA. It's obviously helping him as he was able to produce a two knockouts uh, to eventually find himself into the UFC now. Now, obviously, short notice approach uh, coming in against Dusko Todorovic. And again, super short notice, not to mention the fact that he just fought three weeks ago. How is that going to play into it, right? Some fighters thrive very well in terms of being able to fight back to back to back to back, whereas other fighters need that time off. Me thinking that this guy, you know, at 29 years old and really trying to make a mark inside uh, the MMA world, uh, you know, coming in with a 9-3 and three record, he really wanted to, like, push as much as possible and take advantage of this COVID-19 era that we're in where fighters are just, you know, getting picked up right, left, and center uh, just based on, you know, COVID-19 protocols and guys getting pushed out last minute. Uh, a lot of these guys are staying ready and ready to go and uh, hopefully making a splash within uh, the UFC. I think stylistically speaking, this is a tough matchup for him with Dusko. Now, Dusko, a lot of people are going to be low on him, especially after he lost to Pulna Hollis-Soriano last time around the way that he did back in January. Uh, but a lot of, actually, you know what, there was a lot of people on Dusko that that time I remember doing my rounds that week to like with other podcasts and other people and even just seeing the the love on Twitter everybody's just like Dusko should be able to go out there and absolutely piece up the one-dimensional Punahale Soriano but Soriano you know very explosive very quick quick to the punch and once he started to straighten out his shots he was really able to land on the chin of Dusko who like I said very much relies on kind of just his head movement to get out of the way of the big shots of his opponents 
Uh, he does use his footwork a little bit, but he is going to have to shore up some of his striking defense if he's going to want to have some longevity in the sport. Now, he's only 27 years old, so he's two years younger than um, Mr. Gregory Rodriguez, but he does have some solid experience under his belt. Now, in the Teddy Ash fight on the Contender Series, he was able to rely on a clinch-heavy approach where he's able to push Teddy up against the cage and kind of just grind on him out there and then pretty much just win that fight via decision. The Daquan Townsend fight, he mixed in a bit of that uh, clinch up against the cage, but then he eventually dragged the fight to the ground where he had a massive advantage, found himself in full mount, and was able to really uh, start to rain down big shots on Daquan, eventually getting him out of there midway through the second round, and then obviously losing to Puneale Soriano the way that he did. He wants to be a little bit careful if he wants to decide to take Gregory Rodriguez to the ground here, as I do think that Rodriguez does have the advantage when it comes to jiu-jitsu. He is a national champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu down there in Brazil, and I think that's definitely going to come into play here if that's the route that Dusko Todorovic decides to take here. However, I still find that Gregory might be a little bit too slow on the feet to catch Dushko, and Dushko's you know, method of getting out of ways of punches will probably work out for him here. The one thing that I will say is that Gregory Rodriguez is a big dude, 6'3", 76 inch reach, uh, so that's a 2 inch uh, height advantage as well as a 2 inch reach advantage, and even when he fought Al Matavio two fights ago, Al Matavio is a guy that went up to, against uh, Tafan and Chukwi uh, on the contender series, uh, I believe late last year. And he didn't look that small compared to Tafan, who eventually dropped to, to middleweight. That fight was at light heavyweight. And now, Gregory Rodriguez, you know, when he fought Al Matavio, it looked like there were two or three weight classes apart in terms of size. So he's a big, big dude. I know Matavio still is smaller in comparison to Dusko Todorovic, but that is something that Todorovic is going to have to worry about in terms of using his head movement to get out of the way. You know that you're going to have a lot of big shots coming your way if uh, Rodriguez does straighten out his shots the way that Punahali Soriano did. Dushko will have some trouble in terms of getting out of the way, but I do think that Todorovic will land the better strikes. I think his movement is great, his kicking is great, his ability to maneuver around the cage is going to be very important for him for him here, especially if he starts to reach the outside of the warning track, as I do believe that Rodriguez will be the one kind of pushing the pressure here and kind of on his front foot. But that might put him in danger of getting hit by Dusko Todorovic here, which I think Todorovic will do uh, plenty of times and actually end up knocking out Rodriguez probably in the first or second round of this fight. I think Rodriguez brings some good things to the UFC, but coming in on short notice against a guy like Dusko is probably not the best for him. Uh, but I do understand why people are trying to jump on the Rodriguez train right now, especially at that plus 160-ish, plus 170-ish line that you could get on him earlier in the week. Um, there is the potential for him knocking out Dusko Todorovic, right? We saw Todorovic took a ton of damage against Punale Soriano. However, he was never like completely out, which is why I don't think it's a horrible thing for him to come, be coming back about five months after getting knocked out. But I do think that it is a little bit of concern that people need to worry about if you are laying the chalk on Dushko here. Now, I'm picking Dushko to win. I'm picking him to win by second round KO. But I think the spots to be chasing here would be like the the under... Uh, I want to see if it's actually... It's probably placed at one and a half now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, under one and a half is plus 100. I'd need at least a two and a half, which is minus 215. Obviously, a little bit juice there. Fight doesn't go to decision. is roughly around that minus 300 range. That's kind of where I'm leaning. I don't think this fight's going to see all 15 minutes. I think we'll see Dushko land the better strikes and then eventually put out Gregory Rodriguez in the second round. Let's not forget, Mr. Jordan Williams was very uh, dominant in being able to put away Gregory Rodriguez. And I think that Dushko Todorovic could replicate the same, if not a little bit more highlight reel-esque uh, from Todorovic. So I'm going Dushko via second round KO. Santiago Ponzinibbio versus Miguel Baeza. 
Good Lord, I am excited for this fight. I think this is the fight that I'm anticipating most on this upcoming card. So we got plus 105 on Santiago Ponzinibbio and minus 125 on Miguel Baeza. And I believe there's been a ton of line movement here as we did have Santiago Ponzinibbio open up. up open up at plus 130 uh got down to plus 100 ish and now he's back up to plus 105 uh but i understand it right it's hard to kind of dispel uh why santiago ponzinibbio is getting love especially as an underdog in the spot now we know the whole rap on santiago at this point in time right he came back after an extended layoff uh back in january uh where he got knocked out by Li jing Leung in a fight that was relatively inactive there was not much that was going on there it still seemed like santiago was trying to find his pace he was trying to find his timing he was just trying to get his feet wet you know a lot of the strikes were pretty much just leg kicks from either side both guys were landing good leg kicks trying to get their hands going and once their hands really did start to open up later in that first round that's where we saw Li Jingliang just time the counter perfectly and then absolutely start Santiago Ponzinibbio putting his lights out um Ponzinibbio you know did not look like the guy that we knew when he was beating guys like Nordin Taleb, Gunnar Nelson, Mike Perry and Neil Magny uh but you know I'm not sure how much you can credit it to, you know, the ring rust and and all the injuries and infections and all that stuff that Santiago went through while he was off, I believe, you know, close to two and a half, two to two and a half years, uh, you know, very, very long time off. And he had a lot of injuries and, and, and personal health issues to deal with to finally make it back to the cage. But we just don't know how much it's truly affecting him, right? As somebody that kind of comes to mind that I think about how to, who had to go through maybe not like the exact same things, but like similar things in terms of health issues was Jeff Neal, right? Jeff Neal coming back now and he's 0-2 in his last two fights, not really able to get his game going, loses to Wonderboy Thompson after coming back after a couple of health scares. And then uh, after that loses to Neil Magny and then even puts out a statement himself, right? I need to take time off. I don't know what the fuck happened to me based on, you know, all the things that, that, that happened to me during that time off, but it's affecting my MMA game. Could it be the same thing here for Ponzinibbio? We just don't know. But even if Ponzinibbio comes back and looks like 75% or 80% of what he used to look like when he was on that crazy run, which, you know, got him a main event slot against Neil Magny, um, it, he could be very competitive here against Baeza. You know, he, he is a great technical striker. He has nasty leg kicks when he wants to throw his leg kicks. But it's just we don't know where he's at mentally. And we don't know even if that knockout kind of, you know, makes him even more gun shy. There's just too many question marks regarding Santiago and what kind of level he's going to be performing at to truly go out there and be confident that he should be one, the favorite in this fight, and two, that he's actually going to perform like we actually knew he could. You know, he's 34 years old at this point in time. There are things that he needs to go out there and, and truly fix and change about his game, especially last time around, and just try to tap into what he used to be. But we can't, you know, without a doubt say that he's going to do that here against a young up-and-comer in Miguel Baeza who is on her own tear of his own, right? Uh, undefeated in the UFC, 3-0 at this point in time, not to mention his cont contender series victory over Victor Reyna. But he's had three finishes in the UFC over Hector Aldana, Matt Brown, and most recently Takashi Sato. But those guys are far removed in terms of level of competition when you're talking about Santiago Ponzinibbio. So this is a huge step up for Miguel Baeza. You know, 28 years old, 10 and 0, uh, really has a lot of confidence about him, seems to have a glow about him, and is very, uh, you know, very well trained over there in, uh, at MMA Masters down there in Miami. And uh, I think that they can devise a good enough game plan to go out there and beat a guy like Santiago Ponzinibbio. 
I ultimately will be siding with the slightly younger guy here in Baeza, you know, more active, uh, seems to, you know, be more comfortable inside the cage at this point in time. But I would not be shocked at all if Ponzinibbio goes out there and starts getting his own game going and we see that vintage Ponzinibbio that we used to love back for, from back in the day. Baeza obviously has his own durability issues as we saw in the Matt Brown fight. Matt Brown was close to finishing himself twice in that first round before Baeza was able to shake his cobwebs, get back into it, and then hurt Matt Brown his own, uh, in his own right at the ending of that first round and then finish him early in that second round. There, there's just so many x factors in this fight that's truly hard for me to really put a finger on it in terms of you know being super confident by no means is there a lock of the night spot in this fight either i think both guys are very live i completely understand why the money is coming in ponzinibbio uh but i do like baeza here i think he's just you know with b him being more active he has a great skill set himself obviously you know something that i always touch on when i break down miguel baeza fights is his calf kicking game that should definitely come into play here where he's uh, you know he didn't really get to uh let it go against Takashi Sato, but I do think we'll see him uh, let it go here against uh, Ponzinibbio, which will, should allow him to get his hands going. And as long as he's defensively sound here, which it seemed like he was against Takashi Sato, very high guard, and he didn't want to get clipped by anything, maybe he learned a couple of things, uh, a couple of things or two from that Matt Brown fight. You know, getting hurt early in that fight, but I do think that uh, Baeza should be able to go out there, land some good combinations, remain active enough, and maybe even finish Ponzinibbio a little bit later in this fight. But I think we'll see a calculated approach from both guys, right? And that, again, worries me about if you're a Santiago Ponzinibbio backer in terms of is he doubting himself? You know, is he gun shy? Is there something in the back of his head that's just not going to let him be the same as he used to? And this is a tough test, right? I, I, I think this might even be a tougher test than Lee Jingliang. You know, he was a minus 340 favorite going into that Jingliang fight. And now he's a... Uh, and now he's a, you know, it's pretty much a pick -em, but a very slight underdog here against Miguel Baeza. You know, a lot of people are just throwing Ponzinibbio out now just because he got knocked out last time around. And they're completely forgetting about what his career was before that. But it's just, I, I just can't get a grip on the fact that Ponzinibbio, you know, might not look the same compared to what he was before. Uh, and, and that's the reason why I'm going to be taking Baeza here. Uh, the one last thing I'll say about this fight, the over one and a half at minus 160 is not too bad of a line as I do think that this will be a, a you know a, um, a very patient fight from both guys and we should see this go over the seven and a half minute mark. But then again, I did say that about the, the G, Li Jing Liang and Sant Santiago Ponzinibbio fight as that was my lock of the night play was the over one and a half in that fight and that blew up in my face after it looked like it was going pretty well for the first four or so minutes and then uh, Li Jing Liang uncorks a bomb on Ponzinibbio and puts his lights out. So uh, once again, I'll go with Baeza. I'll go with him to win by decision but I wouldn't be su surprised if either guy gets a finisher as both guys do have some durability concerns but ultimately I will go with Baeza to win by decision which I will say if I'm not mistaken is roughly around plus 300 or plus 400 which I think does have some good value as I do think that uh you know it's there is a damn good shot that he can win this fight by decision so once again I'll go Miguel Baeza via decision Roman Delize versus Laureano Staropoli. We got minus 140 on Delize and plus 120 on Staropoli. And I believe we've had some line movement on this fight too. We had Staropoli roughly around plus 145. Now he's down to plus 120. And I understand why the love is coming in on the Argentinian. Now Roman Delize seems to have completely renovated his training camp over his last couple of fights in terms of going from... Uh, 
I believe he had a gym in Austria, somewhere over there, um, you know, in, in that part of the world, and then eventually moved shop and came over to uh, Extreme Couture and went under the tutelage of Eric Nixick, who obviously has done a lot of good things most recently with uh, Francis Ngannou and most notably, notably with Francis Ngannou. Also, Walt Harris, uh, who's fighting on this card, is also training with them. And you often see pictures with Roman Delize and Walt Harris. Uh, Roman Delize did lose his uh, first ever pro MMA fight last time around against Trevin Giles in a fight that, you know, a lot of question marks about his fight IQ again, right? A lot of going for heel hooks once again, um, you know, bad, bad, uh, uh, bad looks in terms of giving up uh, some good positions where Trevin Giles was able to take advantage. Very close fight, I will say that, but Trevin Giles did come out uh, on the winning edge there. But the issues here are, you know, uh, is Delize truly evolving as a fighter, right? He still looks like that striker who's trying to go out there and just knock your head off. And then he is, you know, doing some decent work in, in terms of landing takedowns, uh, which should help him kind of win rounds and win minutes if he's actually successful in doing so. But the issue here is his top control just doesn't seem the greatest. Every so often he goes out there and tries to... Um, Go for the heel hook, like I said, which gives up position. And there might be one day where he actually pulls it off and gets that submission, but it just hasn't worked out for him as of this point. So uh, he needs to ditch that. I'm hoping Eric Nixick is able to truly get uh, his head in the game and, and and make him shore up those issues. But it's going to be tough against this guy in Loriano Staropoli, who's actually moving up a weight class now. Staropoli spent the majority of his UFC career. Well, he's only had uh, four fights in the UFC at this point in time, and uh, all of them happened at welterweight weight now he's going up to middleweight and initially i was thinking okay why you know he doesn't seem to be or off memory he doesn't seem to be the biggest uh welterweight but you know he's six one seventy one inch reach he's only giving up a, an inch uh in height here to roman delizia so once these guys actually face off against one another you'll truly see that uh loriano storopoli should you know fit into this division pretty easily now, I think that the volume of Staropoli and the unorthodox nature of his striking approach is going to give Delize some issues here, right? Like I said, Delize likes to go out there and try to decapitate you. Uh, but one thing that we have seen add a wrinkle to his game, which is the takedowns, that could uh, kind of help him kind of stifle the game of Staropoli here, which is ultimately why I'm hesitant on taking the underdog shot on Staropoli. I do think that Staropoli wins, so I ultimately will be picking Staropoli to win this fight. But there is that threat of the takedown, which worries me, as I do believe that Delize, who used to fight at lightweight or light heavyweight, um, you know, he will have the strength advantage and he will be able to get some takedowns. It's just how effective is he going to be with those takedowns? I'm just not truly sure that he'll be able to, you know, go out there and and be super successful with it. Uh, the, the star of Polian Salikov fight was an interest, interesting one, right? Neither urgency from either guy outside of that second round for uh, Salikov where he was able to hurt uh, star Poli, almost finished him. Uh, star Poli pulled it out. And was able to, you know, see the final judges' scorecards, but he actually ended up losing that fight regardless. And then the Tim, Tim Means fight. Tim just seemed way more polished of a striker, way more technical of a striker, and a way you know, way more crafty, right? He was setting up traps. He was able, he was able to set up a beautiful head kicks on numerous occasions to land cleanly on Starpoli. But I do think that Starpoli will bring that similar type of style into this fight against Roman Delize, where, you know, throwing the spinning stuff, uh, staying on his bicycle, throwing the volume, uh, you know, landing on Delize. Delize, you know, his striking defense doesn't seem to be the greatest. He seems to enjoy being hit, which is not good, right? Uh, especially when you're going up against a guy like Staropoli, he's going to be able to hit you from all these weird and unorthodox angles. 
So uh, again, I would bet Star Poli here, um, but I do like a couple of the dog spots. I do think a lot of the dogs are barking on this card, uh, but it's just the the possible strength advantage that I think that the leagues is going to have, especially with uh, you know securing takedowns, getting takedowns, and um, you know, uh, yeah, that that could ultimately be what sways the judges in his favor. Uh, but I do like Star Poli here. Uh, again, if this fight stays in the striking realm, I favor Star Poli. I think he uh, has a good enough chin to withstand the power of Delize. Um And again, I just think that he has the, the much better striking technique to go out there and put on a pace, put on a volume on uh, Delize that Delize probably won't be able to keep up with. So I'll go with Star Poli, and I'm going to take Star Poli to win this fight via decision. Just be ever so slightly concerned about the takedown game of the leads. I can't harp on that enough as I do think that could be the difference maker in this fight if he's successful in keeping uh, or in, in taking down Star Poli. So once again, I'll go with Star Poli and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Marcin Tybura versus Walt Harris. We got minus 165 on Tybura and plus 145 on the, the big ticket, I believe his nickname is, Walt Harris. Um, Walt Harris obviously coming off of two bad losses last time around and uh that's kind of a little bit of slack right like i think they rushed him way too early into that Alistair Overeem uh, fight especially after the death of his uh of his daughter or stepdaughter i should say a lot of people remember what happened with that so i'm not going to regurgitate regurgitate that too much but uh, i think people leaning on that Walt Harris coming for you know uh, revenge or Walt Harris trying to avenge the loss of his uh daughter um in that Overeem fight uh you know, I think I think that was a bad narrative to go on, and you could even see it in his physique, right? The guy didn't come in shape. Uh, it seemed like he was more so there just to collect a paycheck, and it kind of hurts to say that. And again, that was one of those weird events where we just kept getting reminded of the whole uh, Anaya Blanchard thing, and it just wasn't a good look, uh, especially for Harris and even for Overeem, right? Do you really want to be the guy that goes out there and beats the shit out of the guy who just lost his daughter in such a tragic fashion? No, but. It's the fight game, and that's exactly what Alistair Overeem was able to do. And not to mention the fact that we got Overeem at minus 155, absolutely insane. So great value on anybody that was able to take Overeem there because, you know, you just have to evade that big power from Harris early, and then you should be able to win the fight, right? Uh, the last time Harris did win a decision was against Andre Arlovsky, but no shit, he popped for steroids after that fight, right? They changed that fight to a no contest, and it was a very close fight. He got outstruck by 20 strikes. I believe it was like 44 to 24 in favor of Andre Arlovsky, but it seemed like Harris was landing the bigger strikes, or it seemed like he was having more octagon control, which is probably why he ended up getting the decision that night. But, you know, it's just not a good look. I think that Harris is a first-round KO or bust kind of guy. Otherwise, he's going to get outworked and out, out slugged by his by his opponents. You know, the, the Sergei Spivak fight, less than 40-second fight, gets him out of there quickly. Uh, Alexei Olenek, I think 12 or 15-second fight, gets him out of there quickly. But then once he starts to fight somebody that actually, you know, gives him some resistance and some opposition, then he starts to run into some trouble, right? Even the Andre Alovsky fight, even with... Um, Harris on the juice or whatever the fuck he took before that fight um you you still see that Arlovsky you know doesn't really put too much into his shots and that's kind of what Arlovsky Arlovsky has been like in his later part of his career is just volume let's go the full 15 minutes whether I finish him whether I don't it doesn't really matter I'm going to go the full 15 minutes and not get knocked out so credit to Arlovsky for not getting knocked out there but 
still, it shows that when there are guys who I believe Marcin Tabora fits this mold, Andrei Lovsky, or sorry, uh, Alex Torvim fits this mold. Same with Alexander Volkov. Fits this mold of a guy that can go out there and beat a guy like Walt Harris. They'll probably drop that first round, but after that, their cardio and their, their volume and their durability should be able to make up for the lack of skill that Walt Harris brings to the table here. Now, uh, like I said, Spivak and Olenek, Harris dust them relatively quickly. The Overeem fight, Overeem uh, was in trouble early, don't get me wrong. And then Walt Harris pretty much empties his gas tank. And then we see Overeem switch the, the script, get the takedowns and really start pounding it on Walt Harris. And then eventually getting him out of there in the second round. Alexander Volkov, that's a spot where we don't see Harris have much success at all. And Volkov pretty much controls that fight from the get-go, maintains the distance, really gets his front kick up the middle going, and he really starts to get uh, Walt Harris to start flinching on it. And once he starts flinching on it, then he has him, right? There's an instance closer to the end of the round where he feints the kick or the knee up the middle to the body. You see Walt Harris really bite on it, and then he comes through with a nice one-two to really rock uh, Walt Harris, and, and that was pretty much the end. I think that's where the ultimate nail was uh, put into the coffin for Walt Harris in that fight we saw uh, uh, Alexander Volkov quickly go out there and finish him in the second round but that fight was done pretty much a third way through that uh, that first round I think Marcin Tybura can bring that same type of energy now not a Volkov type of striking approach but he can bring the whole MMA game here right he's really starting to distance distance himself from the chin issues that he had earlier in uh, you know uh, five fights ago against Augusto Sakai who fights in the main event you see uh, even uh, before that Shamil Abdurrahimov finished him in the second round but now he's put together four solid wins three decisions one ko over greg hardy who just seemed to gas in that fight but marcin tabura is really rounding out his game right i believe he's a brown belt if not a black belt at this point in time in his actually he is a black belt i will say that he is a black belt in jiu-jitsu and i think he's really starting to bring that into his game by mixing in the takedowns and great on him i believe it was the spivak uh, it must have been the spivak fight where he's playing on the feet uh, and making it serviceable enough against spivak but once that two and a half to two minute mark hits he goes for the takedown gets the fight to the ground and really starts grinding out his opponents the Spivak fight and the Grisham fight look pretty much similar right uh really successful with the takedowns the Ben Rothwell fight right he drops the first round but then in the second round really starts to put up the volume a little bit more on Rothwell really starts to attack the body and then in the third round gets the fight to the ground and really starts grinding out Rothwell there too that one surprised me because I was on Rothwell a little bit not a lock in the night play by any means or anything like that but I thought he had the takedown defense I thought he had the cardio and I thought he had the power to really hurt Martin Tybura in that fight but he landed some big shots Tybura kept coming forward and and showed that he was really starting to distance himself like I said earlier from that Agusso Sakai and Shamil Abdurrahimov fights which makes me a little bit more confident in taking him against guys that have some heavy power in their, power in their hands and that's probably all they have in their hands uh to to get the victory and then the Greg Hardy fight another one where he takes some big shots early survives that Greg Hardy gases and then he finally finishes him in that second round beautiful takedown in that second round to ultimately you know completely deflate um uh, Greg Hardy in that fight and then he finishes him with some ground and pound there now this Walt Harris fight it's it all comes down to the first two and a half to three minutes because if I if Walt Harris doesn't finish him early here I think he's truly going to have some trouble with the all-around MMA game that uh Mr. Marcin Tabor is going to be bringing here now Walt Harris can go ahead and change camps as much as he wants right he trained out of Birmingham Alabama where he's from he trained uh, a, a bunch at American Top Team back in the day and now he switched up and he's gone over to Vegas now training with uh, Eric Nixick and those guys over at, at Extreme Couture he has uh Roman 
Brenda Lidze that he's training with often. Even staying at Francis Ngannou's place, if I'm not mistaken, training with him a little bit as well. Um, and he has a bunch of other guys that you see in his pictures constantly, right? Dan Ige, even though those guys are much lower in the weight class. Uh, he's trying to surround himself with guys that can go out there and push him and take him to that next level. But I think he's just too far ahead uh, at this point in time in terms of his age. The guy's 37 years old. He's 13 and 9 at this point in time. Like he doesn't bring much to the table outside of that first uh, two and a half to three minutes because then I think that's where it really starts to drop off. That's where he really starts to like let his opponent kind of dictate the pace, get the takedowns, and really start to you know rough him up. Now we saw him come in incredible shape in that Alexander Volkov fight, right? If I'm not mistaken, he came in 10 to 15 pounds lighter uh, than he did compared to the Alistair Overeem fight, and he looked in great shape. A lot of people were very very surprised to see him in that type of shape, but uh, you know good luck for him. But that still wasn't enough. I found it hilarious that that second round, the beginning of the second round of the Volkov fight, like 20 seconds of the fight, you see him look up at the clock like dog you still got four and a half minutes to go with the savage and alexander volkov now volkov is a much better fighter than tabora i'll definitely give him that but i do think tabora has the great all-around mma game to go out there and really put it on uh mr harris here and i think he's really going to make him work uh especially if he can survive that first two and a half to three minutes after he can do that i'm sure the takedowns will come a little bit easier for uh tabora and i could see tabora finishing him in the second or third round Tabura via, via submission, I think somebody said was around plus 1,000. I think that's a little bit of a good look, but I could also see Tabura going out there and ground and pounding Walt Harris, who's not going to have much resistance off of his back after that first round. So this could be a, a good live betting opportunity, right? If you watch this fight, if Tabura survives that first round, I do expect a big onslaught from Harris in that first round. Hit that live line, you right? You might be able to get some good plus money on Tybora going into that second round. But even pre-fight, I'm quite confident in Tybora in this spot. I think he's distanced himself enough from those KO losses that he should be able to take whatever Walt Harris brings to him. And he's, you know, really rounded out his game where he's really starting to mix in the takedowns and start to punish his opponents from on top. So I like Tybora a lot here. Um, there is a spot earlier in this card that I like a lot more because I feel like the resistance is a lot less in that fight compared to this fight. Uh, but I do think that if Tybura gets out of that first two and a half to three minutes, this is going to be his fight. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I'd be surprised if Walters gets a uh, win uh, in this fight outside of the first round. If it happens outside of the first round, I'll give him a little bit more respect and give him a little bit more due in terms of changing up the training camp over there to Eric Nixick in Extreme Couture and maybe rounding out his game a little bit better there. But I just don't see it happening. In, in one training camp i don't see it happening um uh, against a well-rounded guy in marcin taboro who's really seemed to find his groove especially over his last four fights so once again i'll go with marcin taboro and i'm going to take him to win this fight either by second or third round tko but i won't be uh i won't neglect that k or that submission prop if it's still in that crazy 1000 ish range um come fight time so once again i'll go with marcin taboro i'll go with second round ko and last thing i'll say the third round prop here is live in my opinion so i will be looking to target that as well once the odds drop for that so once again i'll go marcin tabura second round tko via ground and pound all right main event time we got jazinho rosenstrike against augusto sakai we got minus 115 on rosenstrike and or minus 105 on sakai the line has been shifting a little bit sakai was about plus 115 earlier in the week but now we got him at minus 105 as a lot of people are starting to pour in that money on Sakai not 100% sure how this line is going to continue to shift out uh, or shake out as this week goes on I am recording this on the Saturday a full week before the actual fight uh, but I do expect a uh, you know if the public is smart if, if there are some sharps out there the line should be coming in on Sakai uh, as I believe that he should be favored in this spot so if you can 
get him at plus money uh, at the time of you recording this. I do believe he's worth a, a bit of a shot. If I can get him at plus money on a, uh, on one of my websites here, I'll more than likely be making him a, a solid dog spot on this card as I do believe he has all the tools to go out there and beat a guy like Jersey Neuros and Strike. So let's start off on the Augusto Sakai side. He is coming off his first loss in the UFC where he dropped uh, a knockout loss uh, in the fifth round where he got ground and pounded by Alistair Overeem. And that was his first time in a five-round fight in the UFC, so you got to cut him a little bit of slack. He was winning those first three rounds pretty handily and even got up to minus 400 on the live betting window before in the fourth round uh Alistair Overeem was able to drag him to the ground and start really wearing on him and then we start the we saw the cardio issues of Augusto Sakai really start to uh muster up and and, and try to pretty much screw him in that fight ultimately Alistair Overeem goes out there and ground and pounds him early in that fifth round as he was really starting to dish out the damage uh as that fight started to drag on even later into the rounds but you gotta give uh, Sakai a little bit of slack right first ever five round fight he did seem to perform pretty well in those first three rounds but it seemed like he blew his load a little a bit too early trying to get the chinny alistair over him out of there early and was not able to i think that's a great uh source of experience to go out there and have successful or, or successful early rounds against a legend like alistair over him but then it really starts to kick in uh the later the fight goes that okay wait we still got two more rounds to go if this was a three round he probably wins that fight pretty easily but it is a five round rounder just as this fight with jazinia rosenstrike is the difference here though Alistair Overeem, as we saw in his uh, later parts of his UFC career, um, you know, really started to to focus on the grappling aspects of his game, right? Really start to drag his opponents down, just like he did against Walters, just like he did against Augusto Sakai, and really start to like grind these guys out, try to uh, get some big ground and pound going from on top, and and it worked out for him. And Augusto Sakai, you know, having to deal with that type of approach, it really does drain your gas tank, having to defend takedowns, and then obviously taking a shit kicking from the top position by Overeem does not help either but with Jersey and your Rosa strike he doesn't have that much to worry about right you have a guy that heavily relies on his power and if he doesn't have his power going for him you know then then it gets a little bit shaky because the activity is just not there that's why I think Sakai truly beats him right Sakai's never been uh knocked out outside outside of that ground and pound loss that he had to Alistair Overeem last time around but his only other loss was that split decision loss to Czech Congo back when he was in Bellator so he's eaten some big shots in the past it's not like he gets one punch KO'd or we don't really see him get rocked and dropped by crazy shots on the feet it's just that one ground and pound loss that he had to Alistair Overeem are you expecting ground and pound from Jairzinho Rosa strike here probably not right Jairzinho uh, heavily relies on getting his uh big uh, shots going just like he did against Junior Dos Santos you know he dropped that first round kind of finding his range and then in the second round really started to let it go and found that big shot to eventually hurt uh Junior Dos Santos and then follow up with some big shots to get him out of there but you see you know in the Cyril Gan fight perfect example and obviously Gan and um Sakai are two completely different fighters but one thing that they do have in common is that they are a little bit more volume based right they 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 don't rely on that one shot KO power like Augusto Sakai was able to get Chase Sherman and Marcin Tybura out there pretty quickly but then when you see their fights extended like the Andrei Olovsky fight the the Blood Goy Ivanov fight and even earlier fights in Sakai's uh, career he, he does rely a little bit more on volume and not that crazy heavyweight slugger type of approach that a lot of these guys do which I do think that Jersey Neurosen strike uh, relies 
relies on as well. Uh, I will say, obviously, the Blagojevna fight close, not to mention it was a split decision win for him, but also that cheeky third round fence grab that Sakai had that kind of um, allowed him to stay vertical against uh, Blagojevna because who knows what would happen if Ivanov was able to secure that takedown, that head and arm throw, if he was able to actually secure it and how the rest of that third round were played out. Luckily for Sakai, only got warned, didn't get a point taken away or anything like that, uh, and was able to get the get his hand raised via split decision that night. But I just like what I see from Sakai, right? Volume. Um, I believe we'll see a little bit more patience from him this time around uh, so that he can have, um, you know, better cardio. And again, he's not going to have too much resistance to worry about in regards to, you know, getting taken down or or being pushed too much. He's just going to have to worry about the big shots coming his way from Rosenstrike. Now, even though Rosenstrike has that fifth round knockout victory over Alistair Overeem, I think his power does start to taper off a little bit uh, when he's dealing with a guy that's a little bit smarter, like a serial gun. And I believe the, uh, like, uh, Augusto Sakai here. If Sakai can kind of just push him up against the cage, and, and Siragan had a lot of success in that too. Same with Alistair Overeem. Just clinch fuck him up against the cage, you know stay active enough with dirty boxing and and some uh, knees uh, on the on the knee the, the charlie horse if that's what you want to call it. Just stay active enough so that the referee doesn't separate you. Even if he does get back into it, you know what I mean, stay on your bicycle a little bit, get get the punches off from the outside, uh, Augusto Sakai does have some good front kicks off the middle too, that he could utilize here to kind of keep uh, uh, strike on the outside, um, and I think he can stay active enough and defensively sound enough to stay away from the big power of Rosenstrike. Now, if Rosenstrike doesn't have that power, what else does he have, right? You don't often see him winning by decision. I think he has one decision victory earlier in his uh, MMA career, but most of his victories have come via KO. Again, the Alistair Overeem fight, right? He's winning that fight up until, or, or sorry, he's losing that fight. Alistair Overeem wins, I believe, the first four rounds on two judges' scorecards, and one judge actually gave that fourth round to uh, Jersey Union Rosenstrike. But Overeem was a second away from winning that fight just off of being, you know, patient, uh, outvoluming, uh, and staying away from the big shots. Unfortunately for him, he wasn't able to stay away from it with four or five seconds left in that uh, in the fight, pretty much. And then he gets knocked out. Obviously, we know that infamous uh, picture of his lip being uh, dismembered, and ugh, it was disgusting. But still, I, I truly believe guys like Jerzinho Rosenstrike, Walt Harris, who we also obviously talked about earlier in this podcast, uh, Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou, they're almost KO or bust type of fighters, right? Derek Lewis has a little bit more longevity with his power. You know, he always has these crazy comeback knockouts. Uh, Walt Harris, a guy that has early power and then starts to taper off and then starts to give up, uh, you know, his fights. Um, and then Jerzino Rosenstrike, right? Same thing. Uh, luckily for him, again, like I said, the Overeem fight, uh, there was longevity in his power there where he was able to get that knockout late in the fight but when he gets out volume and outworked that's where he runs into trouble and that's exactly where i think augusto sakai can do here it's just the pacing that sakai has to worry about so that he doesn't find himself in trouble in that fourth and fifth round where he did start to slow against over him again i feel like he had way more resistance and way more uh, um, activity in that overeem fight that he had to deal with compared to what he's gonna have to deal with here with jersey and your rosenstrike so Strap yourselves in. They might, this might be another boring fight like the Cyril Ghan and Jersey Neurosa strike fight, but you can't 
pretty much blame Gon. You can't blame Sakai when they're trying to stay away from the big power because one little slip up just asks Alistair Overeem and you're getting half your money. So this might be another boring fight, which is what I'm expecting. And I'm going to be taking Augusto Sakai to win this fight via decision because I just don't see any other way that Rosa Strike wins this fight other than knocking out Sakai here. And uh, I, I think that's a low probability. And I think a lot of people are kind of just holding on to that a little bit too much. But when you look at this as an overall scope, if he's not able to get that knockout, it's kind of fucked and uh, i'll go with the durability that we've seen from sakai even though he was getting ground and pounded to death by alistair overeem in that fight he was never like truly out right it was just exhaustion it was just gassing pretty much and i don't think that we're going to see that approach here from rosa strike which leads me to believe that sakai should be a pretty safe spot here as long as he doesn't get starched early so i like sakai here uh, and I like him to win by decision. I think it's around plus 400, plus 450 for that decision prop on Sakai. And I think that's very, very juicy considering I think that uh, Rosenstrike is very durable. Uh, I think Sakai, very durable as well. And I do see this fight going the full five rounds. Over one and a half, I've seen a lot of people smashing that. That's around minus 200. I think there's some decent value there still as I do believe that this might be a slow-paced fight. Um, you know, uh, Sakai will stay away from the big power. I don't think Rosenstrike is going to get knocked out. So we should see it head into the second, third, fourth, and even fifth round which is why ultimately I'll be taking Augusto Sakai to win this fight via decision. And those are the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed the breakdowns. And hopefully we can change or parlay these uh, this analysis and all these predictions into some cash for you guys this weekend at UFC Vegas 28. As always, you guys know that we got a ton of great content, live content coming through you, to you throughout the week, so do stay tuned for that. I will let you guys know right off the bat, I don't have the cast for the Ultimate Wayne Show on Friday set yet. I do have a couple of guys already set in stone. I'm just waiting to round it out with my third person, uh, but it is a special start time this Friday. Again, as I said at the top of the show, I will be going to a cottage this Friday, uh, Friday evening, so I won't be able to do it at the regular time at 9 p.m. Eastern, so I'm moving it up to 3 p.m. Eastern on Friday afternoon that's pretty much right after the weigh-ins uh so 3 p.m eastern the ultimate weigh-in show that's when it's going down but obviously thursday uh 8 p.m eastern propping you up as always with me and cody uh friday um obviously 3 p.m eastern but i'm also going to be doing my live stream for the live weigh-in show uh that should go down at, at noon eastern all the way up until 2 p.m then i'm going to take a, an hour off and then i'm right back at it for the ultimate weigh-in show as well so a ton of great content coming for, you, coming for you guys on the live stream side of things and uh yeah great to be back we had one week off but we're right back into the thick of things with ufc vegas 28 and if i'm not mistaken we have four straight events then another week off so let's make the most of these four straight events not to mention we got bellator pfl all coming up and June as well so it's going to be a busy month let's try to turn all of that into some cash appreciate you guys watching as always make sure you guys hit that like hit that subscribe check out the patreon and obviously check out cool bet as well all the links are in the description below so make sure you guys check that out good luck on your best this weekend and i'll see you guys throughout the week good luck once again